Acts chapter 1. We're entering a, uh, a final section this morning of the what I'm calling the introductory portion of the book of Acts. It's an introductory portion because for this section that we've been in so far and we'll continue in uh, for this study is uh, Jesus is still on the scene. He hasn't left this world yet. And so this section functions in a sense as a, a framework for the rest of the book of Acts. But in this section that's immediately ahead of us, Uh, we have the great event known as the ascension of Christ in which he is leaving this world and returning to heaven. So what I'd like to do is I'd just like to read the entire front section then as a whole, which is starting in verse 1 of Acts 1 and reading through to the end of verse, um, even though verse 12 is really the beginning of the next section, I'm going to read through to verse 12. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. All right, so we are focused in verses 9 through 12 for our study this morning. And this event that has been rightly labeled by the church the ascension of Christ, the lifting up or the return of the Lord from earth to heaven, is one of the singular most important events in all of history. Uh, All of the greatest events in history, and biblically, you know, we could list dozens upon dozens of super important events but all of the most important events in history revolve directly around Christ and the Lord's great purpose in him and through him and in scripture in our study as we've gone through the gospel of Matthew together and now we're just entering into the book of Acts and all of our focus of our study has been on Christ in a very specific and direct way What we've seen is there are 
great focal points in Scripture on the story of Jesus, and rightly so. Those focal points include the incarnation of Christ, the story of his birth, his entrance into the world, what all of that means, and how that changed everything. Then, of course, the beginning point of his public ministry, which was his baptism, and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him. Then his public ministry began, his public teaching, uh, proclaiming and explaining the words of God more clearly than ever had happened in all of history before that moment. And of course, his uh, powerful works to confirm that he and he alone is truly the Messiah, truly the Savior, truly the Lord through both his miracles and his healings. This all leads up to the the event known as the Transfiguration, where he uh, briefly reveals himself on the mountaintop to three of his chosen disciples as the heavenly one, the glorious one. And then, of course, that immediately leads to the great event, which is the focal point of our salvation story, his sacrificial death for us on the cross, immediately connected to his resurrection from the dead. And then that brings us after this 40-day interim period that is mentioned here, and we've been focused on in these early verses in Acts, uh, from the resurrection to these verses, verse 9 through 11 specifically, there's a 40-day interim period. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been Throughout the course of these 40 days, he's been appearing to his disciples. He's not staying with them 24-7 during those 40 days, but he appears to them 10 specific times. He has these important interactions with them, and there's one primary theme to all of those interactions. We did uh, some detailed study on that primary theme, which is he was speaking to them, as Luke briefly describes it, about the kingdom of God. And then that leads up to this last appearance. This is now the 10th and final appearance of the Lord Jesus in his resurrection glory to his disciples. And in this appearance, starting in verse 9, we have a final brief exchange, and then the Lord Jesus disappears from their sight. But he does, he does so in a, in a different way than he has in the nine previous 40-day appearances that have taken place up until this point. We're going to focus on some of the details this morning of what's different about this this particular leaving his disciples uh, compared to the previous nine times. But as we're considering these verses, there's only, you know, verse 9, 10, and 11, and then I'm just including verse 12 because it it contains a, a practical and physical detail, a couple of details that kind of set the scene in a specific location for us. But in these three brief verses, we have what I'm going to call a bare bones description by Luke. Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, so I'm not calling into question how he wrote it and why he wrote it as simply as he does. But in a way that I'm not able to do, he packs into these three verses so much that's critically important for us to understand that what I want to do is I want to, I want to stay here for a while. Not just this morning. I'm, what I'm thinking of doing is 
um, doing kind of a mini-series on these verses. Uh, I think what we'll do is we'll do a study today and then three more after this, Lord willing. Uh, For today's study, what I want to focus on is the ascension of Christ as Luke basically describes it to us in these three verses, which is the ascension of Christ from the viewpoint or the perspective of the disciples that were there to witness it that day. Then next study, which will be in two weeks because we have home church next Sunday morning. But two weeks from today, what I want to do is I want to look at the same event, the ascension of Christ, but not through the disciples' eyes, but through the viewpoint of heaven itself. Because what we believe, and rightly so, is that when Jesus left their perspective, he left their observable um, viewpoint, he disappeared at a certain point as he was ascending, he, at the same time that he was disappearing from their view on earth, he was appearing to the viewpoint of those that were in heaven. And he arrives in heaven, and then things unfold as he arrives in heaven. Luke doesn't even, at this point in the account, doesn't address what happens to Jesus as soon as he disappears from their sight. He's only concerned here to describe the experience as the disciples were being impacted by it that day. But in our next study, I want to focus on what happens after he disappears from their sight. And then the following two studies, what I'd like to do, so a total of four, is I would like to look at the significance of the ascension. What does it mean? What, why is it so important for us to focus on? I'm calling it one of the great focal points of the story of Christ. I don't, you know, it's, it's difficult when you start ranking the, the, the various important elements of the story of Christ. Um, you can make a case and say the cross is the single most important thing about the story of Christ because it's the, it's the real cause, the direct cause of our salvation. You could also make a case and say the resurrection is the single most important event because if you have a crucifixion and a death without a resurrection, then there's no assurance that his death was actually a saving death at all. And you can make a case, and it's a, it's a strong one, that the ascension is even more significant than the crucifixion and the resurrection. But I'm not going to try to rank them in that way. I'm just going to say that as a a combination of a singular great event with three elements to it, a crucifixion, a resurrection, and ascension, the ascension is as important as the cross and as the resurrection are. So what I've identified in my preparation to teach you is that there are 12 essential elements to the ascension and I want to focus on those and I I don't think I can cover all 12 in a single study so I'm going to break that into two parts so we'll do a total of four today the ascension from the disciples perspective next study the ascension from heaven's perspective and then in the final two studies the 12 reasons why we should hold the ascension in such high regard in terms of our heart's perspective and understanding Uh, The the sad thing about the ascension in comparison to the crucifixion and the resurrection, though, is that it hasn't, for whatever reason, and I'm just not even sure why this is the case, it hasn't gotten adequate attention. 
in terms of good, healthy Bible teaching through the last 2,000 years of church history. I'll give you an example. Uh, Some of you have been to visit my office and seen my library of books. And um, I have a whole section of books just on the cross, the significance of the cross, the meaning of the cross, the event of the cross, everything that the cross conveys to our lives. I probably own 20 to 25 books on the cross. Really, really good, meaty, important books detailing the the meaning of the cross. And I own a, a section on the resurrection that's not quite as large as the books on the cross, but nearly as large. I also own books on the ascension, but if I have 20 to 25 books on the cross, how many do you think I own on the ascension? You know what, up until this week, I owned one book on the Ascension. And I now own two because in, in considering why do I only have one book on the Ascension, I went looking for others. And I found two others and I decided one of them wasn't worth buying, so I bought the other one that seemed worth buying. And I'm just about to start reading that one. But to me, thinking in terms of my library, and not just my personal library, what's even available, what's been written, what's been, what's been focused on in terms of healthy Christian teaching, um, just very little has been written about it in comparison to how much has been written about the cross and the resurrection. And I can't fix that for the wider body of Christ, but I can address that here. And so that's what we're going to do for these next four studies. All right, so let's dig into then the ascension as, as Luke describes it for us by the Spirit of God in his account. And this is, of course, as I'm emphasizing, the ascension through the disciples' eyes. Now, Luke actually has two accounts. We've read the one here, and we'll come back and reread that in just a moment. But let's go back and read his first account of the ascension, and that is near the end of the Gospel of Luke. So why don't you turn over to Luke, last chapter, chapter 24. It's one of the distinguishing features. We just finished a a long study through the Gospel of Matthew. And if I was brave, I I might have started, instead of a study through the book of Acts, I might have studied a Uh, started a study through the Gospel of Luke right after we finished Matthew. The reason why is because um, while there's a lot of similar material between Matthew and Luke, for obvious reasons, it's the same basic story, uh, I've emphasized, and I did this throughout our study in Matthew, that each Gospel writer was given their own assignment from the Lord, and each account is, is unique and a little bit different than each other account. But there's so much in Luke's uh, gospel that is not in Matthew's gospel that I, I wish I could focus on in the same way we did with Matthew. And this is one of those things. In Matthew's gospel, remember, how does Matthew's gospel end? We just, we just camped there at the ending of the gospel of Matthew. He ends with what we call the Great Commission, a final appearance of the Lord Jesus, a resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus to his disciples. And in that final appearance, there are things described by the Lord Jesus about what has happened to him and the new role and the new 
the new position that he occupies in God's great purposes for all of history, and then a final commission or a final set of marching orders for those that are his true followers, his true disciples. And then that's it at the end of Matthew's gospel. He doesn't, Matthew doesn't even give us a description of the ascension. But Luke does under his assignment. And so let's read Luke's first description of the ascension because he wrote the gospel of Luke before he wrote the book of Acts. And then we'll jump back to Acts 1 and reread the description there. We're in Luke chapter 24 and we'll read from verse 50. And this, uh, the Lord Jesus is the he in focus in verse 50 here. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. The leading out here is the Lord Jesus was going back to earlier verses in the chapter. He was in the city of Jerusalem with his disciples. And so now Jesus, as he often did throughout the course of the three years of his public ministry, he often walked with the disciples outside the city of Jerusalem, leaving the city behind, following that pathway, that road down through the Kidron Valley and up the slope of the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives being a mountain set directly across a valley, the Valley of Kidron, from the Temple Mount, where the temple was the most prominent structure in the ancient city of Jerusalem. And so here, one more time, the Lord Jesus leads his disciples out of the city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and he leads them out as far as Bethany. Bethany was a small town on the far side of the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem. So here the Lord leads them to what we would call the summit of the Mount of Olives. And when they arrived there together, Luke describes that he was lifting up his hands and he blessed them. He led them as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now we don't know the exact posture, you know, whether he was lifting his hands this way or lifting his hands this way, uh, but clearly his hands are in focus in the disciples' perspective and he's doing something that was commonly done throughout old covenant history in critically important moments of Israel's relationship with the Lord in which the Lord, through those that he had appointed to lead and minister to his people, would bless his people. I think probably the, the specific pattern of events that's in focus here that we're meant to think of is how the Lord, through the very first of the high priests that had been appointed by the Lord to, to minister to his people and to, to be a blessing to them, that first high priest being Aaron, uh, the Lord established a pattern in which at key moments in Israel's interaction with the Lord, through the avenue of Aaron's leadership as the high priest of the people, Aaron would lift his hands and pronounce a very specific blessing upon the people of the Lord. And so here, the Lord Jesus, in the role or in the position of the great high priest, greater even than Aaron, is lifting his hands 
And we don't hear what specific blessing he pronounced, but clearly the Lord is blessing them in this moment. And as he's doing so, in fact, we're told in verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And so what we're meant to understand in terms of what the disciples experienced is Jesus walked with them to this location on the summit of the Mount of Olives. He lifted his hands. He begins to bless them. And even as he's blessing them, his physical body begins to lift up off of the surface of the planet. And it continues to rise into the sky. And as he's rising, he's not like I would be or you would be in that circumstance, which is I'm here talking to you right now. Can you imagine if I just started levitating off of the floor? What do you think I would do? I wouldn't keep speaking like I'm speaking now. I'd be like, what's going on? I'd be disoriented. I'd be amazed. And you would be disoriented. And you would be amazed. So it's, it's certainly understandable if the disciples are going to be a little bit disoriented and amazed here. But what's noticeable is the Lord Jesus is in the process of blessing his disciples. His body lifts up from the planet and begins to rise into heaven. And as that's happening, what does he do? He continues blessing them. While he was blessing them, or while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And the wording in the original text is clear. He never stopped blessing them as he was rising. Now, why, why that detail? What's important about that detail? is because what is happening is an event that is so great and so significant and so long-range impactful, not just on these 11 men that happened to be privileged to be the eyewitnesses of the event that day, but all who would ever follow in their footsteps after them, including you and me. This event is so great that it can only be described from the disciples' perspective as the circumstance of a continual blessing. The idea being he's raised up into heaven and it's not like the very thing we're not meant to get from this is while Jesus was here on the earth, we were recipients of awesome blessings, but he's leaving now and that's all coming to an end. No more blessings through him. The whole point of this is he, yes, his life in this world was the ultimate and greatest expression of blessing that humanity has ever experienced and received, and especially those, of course, who believe in him in a saving way. But his rising from this planet, his being lifted up, his ascending back to heaven doesn't end the blessing. It's simply a continuation of the greatest blessing yet. So as he goes into heaven, he is pouring out a continuing blessing upon those who belong to him. So while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up. 
into heaven. Now there's a very specific kind of description going on here, and it's one that we're not meant to miss. And as we're about to head over to Acts 1 again and reread the description there, we're going to see it's, it's a very similar kind of description with the same kind of emphasis. And that is, who is responsible for him lifting up from the planet and ascending back into heaven? The one who's not responsible is Jesus himself. He did not lift himself up off of the planet and travel into heaven under his own power. Now that's an important point that Luke is careful to emphasize in his description. The parting from them is a description of something that's happening to him and his being carried up into heaven is a description like a parent reaching down and picking up their small child, folding that child into their arms and carrying the child from one location to another. Now, the Lord Jesus is not a child here, but the point is he is being carried rather than motivating under his own power from one location to another. And then Luke ends his account here simply with the reaction and the response of the disciples because at a certain point, as he's parted from them, he disappears from their sight and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God, meaning that this was so deeply impactful upon them that it had an ongoing effect in their heart's interaction and relationship to the Lord. But the first and and foremost thing that they did in response was they worshiped, which clearly indicates either they were really now blowing it here at the end in this critically important moment, or they were really now getting it at a depth and at a level that they had not gotten up until this point. Blowing it would mean they worshiped him, but they shouldn't have because he's just a man, just like them. You know how there are times in scripture where, where uh, there are those who with good intentions start to worship those that are mighty and powerful and are impressive, but should not be worshiped. And in every case in scripture, the ones that should not be worshiped, if those are, are worshiping them, they, they, they stop their efforts. Like um, later in the book of Acts, we'll get to eventually a portion where Paul the Apostle is proclaiming the gospel in a certain location and he's doing, he's doing uh, supernatural uh, things in conjunction with the proclamation of the gospel, those supernatural things being healing people that could not be healed by natural uh, remedy. And in doing so, the, the population of the city is so impressed by what Paul's doing that um, they, they identify him as a god. And so they begin to worship him. Uh, they, it's not just Paul. Paul has an apostolic companion by the name of Barnabas at that point in the story. And, and uh, Barnabas is kind of the, the quiet, strong type, apparently. And uh, so the, the crowd identifies Barnabas with Zeus, the chief of the gods. And Paul's the one doing all the talking. And so they identify him as 
uh, the messenger of Zeus, and uh, that being in their Greek mythology was himself a deity, and so they're worshiping this pair of deities. And, and what does Paul do? Of course, he immediately tries to stop them from worshiping him. It's not appropriate. But even like in the book of Revelation, when John is so impressed by something that an angel has revealed to him that he falls down at the angel's feet and he begins, this is John the apostle who should know better, but he begins to worship the angel and then what's the immediate reaction of the angel? In that portion, the angel speaks to him and rebukes him and says, don't do that. Don't worship me. I'm not one to be worshiped. And the reason he's not one to be worshiped is because he's not divine. He's not deity. He's not God. Only God deserves to be worshiped. And so here in Luke's account, when the disciples worship him, if they're missing it, if they're not getting it, then we would expect Luke to include one of those elements of someone coming along to correct them. But there's no correction because here, for the first time, they're getting it in fullness and fullness of understanding, and they're doing what's appropriate for what they've just observed and witnessed. So this is Luke's first account. Let's turn back now and read his second account, the parallel account, the account that's in focus here in Acts chapter 1. And now I'll just read the three verses, 9 through 11. Jesus, again, is in focus. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so the first thing that I think we're meant to notice is the the element that I emphasize from the Gospel of Luke about Jesus being carried from the surface of the planet into heaven. Here, Luke doesn't use the word carried. He uses a slightly different word, but it's, it's conveying the same concept. In verse 9, when he had said these things, and the things that he had just said is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, is simply another version of what we call the Great Commission. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, meaning this isn't, okay, he, he gave them the Great Commission, and then sometime later, he leaves. But even as he's finished speaking those words, he was lifted up. And the, the phrase lifted up is in what is called in the Greek language in which this was originally written, a passive verb, meaning that there's action going on. He's lifting from one location to another, from one position to another, but he's not the one doing the lifting. If Jesus was lifting himself in his ascension, it would be in what's called the active voice rather than the passive voice. It would be emphasizing in that way that he's the one doing it. 
by his power. Now, my question is, we're talking about the resurrected Lord Jesus. And in his resurrection, he is now a fully glorious being. He is as powerful now in his resurrection as he ever was before his incarnation. Did Jesus have inherent within himself in this moment the power to lift himself from earth to heaven? If Jesus decided, I want to leave planet earth and I want to return to heaven, did he have the ability to do so? And that's, that's, that's a yes, it's an obvious yes answered question, but it, it's also significant because here's the reality of the circumstance. No one else does. I don't. You don't. There comes a moment in each believer's life, and I'm, I'm, this only applies to true believers. There comes a moment in each believer's life where your life in this present world comes to an end. You breathe the last breath that your lungs will ever breathe in this world. Your heart beats and pumps blood through your veins one final time, and then you die. And when you die, your soul disconnects from your physical body. And where does it go? If you're a believer, it goes directly into the presence of the Lord. But how does it get there? You're not capable. I'm not capable. Even in, in soul form, if that's a correct way to describe it, even in soul form, you and I are not capable of just like, okay, I'm just snapping my soul fingers here and I'm going to heaven. I can't bring myself from one location spiritually to another in that way. And no one else can either. In the same way, there are people in this world who breathe their last breath, their soul disconnects from their body, and they have no home in heaven because they have no true relationship with the Savior. They have no faith that has saved them. They have no experience of the saving grace of God in their heart and in their soul. And their soul does not go to heaven, but goes to the other spiritual holding place, which is hell. And they have no desire to go there, but they're taken there, just like the souls of true believers are taken to heaven at the moment of death. So does Jesus, in contrast to every unbeliever that's ever died and every believer even that's died, does Jesus have the power not just to raise his soul from earth to heaven if he chooses so, but he is living now in a resurrected and glorified physical body. Can, does he have the power, the ability in this moment to move his physical body to heaven? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. He could easily have done so had he chosen to do so. But the focus of what happens here is to impress upon our hearts that this is something that's happening to him. And in that, in a sense, the Lord himself is running the risk of appearing less than fully powerful in this moment. But there is something communicated in the way that it happens that we're not meant to miss. And that is, if he's not the one 
lifting himself into heaven or as the gospel of Luke described it, carrying himself into heaven, then who is? And the only answer that's left to us is God the Father. So in the ascension, we have a parallel account to what unfolded in one of the other great focal point events of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, which was at his baptism. You know the circumstances, and I won't take us back through the whole event of the baptism, but Jesus went to the River Jordan, met with John the Baptist, and submitted to being baptized in water by John the Baptist. And as he came up out of the water, something significant happened. And that was a visible form of a dove descended from heaven and came and rested directly upon him. And, and from John the Baptist's perspective, remained upon him. And then a voice was heard from heaven. And clearly, we're meant to understand that this was the voice of God the Father himself. And that voice said special words in relationship to his son who had just been baptized. And those words were, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's God the Father's special testimony at the beginning of his public ministry so that any who have ears to hear and hearts to understand would get from the very first point of his public ministry that this is the one that God has chosen. This is the special one. This is the pleasing one. This is the one who uniquely among all human beings in all of history has lived in a perfectly pleasing way in the eyes of God himself. So here, at the end of his public ministry, in this world, because this is the final moment. The baptism was the first moment of his public ministry. This is the final moment of his public ministry. And in this moment, God the Father does something that gives a, like a book in, like a parallel testimony that his son is fully pleasing in his sight. And what God the Father does in this moment is he lifts his son up from earth to heaven. He carries his son into heaven as a testimony to those that are observing the eyewitnesses here, the 11 disciples that are eyewitnesses, as a testimony to them and then ultimately to us through them that the son of God has lived a perfectly pleasing life in the eyes of God the Father and has fulfilled and accomplished fully the mission that he was given by the Father which brought him here to begin with. And so he was lifted up and then at the end of verse 9 as he was lifted up a new detail is introduced in the Acts account that's not mentioned in the Luke account but it's a very important detail and that is as he was lifted up a cloud took him out of their sight. The imagery here is almost as if the cloud is a means of conveyance, as if a cloud is functioning here as a transport vehicle between earth and heaven. 
the, the imagery is that the cloud envelops him and carries him the rest of the way into heaven. Now, we have two options here. We can view this cloud as it's just a random meteorological event. It just so happens that Jesus ascended on a cloudy day and as he was going, he happened to pass through one of the clouds that was in the sky. It's possible that that's how Luke is communicating this and that's what we're meant to, to read it as, but uh, I, think you, I think you're ready to, to go along with me with the idea that there's, there's something more going on here, there's something more significant. And of course, uh, one of the things, and I, this is a, a study I did probably, first time I ever did this study was probably uh, 40 years ago. I used to do special what I call word, word studies through scripture, as a, as a younger believer trying to understand the full story of, of God's workings in all of history. So I would take a single key word and I would look up every place in the entire Bible where that word occurs using a concordance. And then I would, I would write down each one of those verses and I would compare all of those verses on that, that were focused on that key word so that I could kind of build a, a, a combined understanding of the significance of that word. I did a, a study like that for the word cloud. And you might think, oh, there might be like, how many, how many cloud verses are there in scripture? You know, there might be like a half a dozen. There might be 10. There might be 12 cloud verses. There are dozens upon dozens of cloud verses. But there are certain verses that are focused on a cloud as opposed to just clouds in general. And of course, you're familiar with the most important cases of that. This is, and I think we're meant to see from this, this is an appearance of what was known in old covenant time and in the culture of that day of the Shekinah. The Shekinah was a special cloud. It was a cloud that was always associated with God himself, with the activity of God, and not just the activity of God, but the appearance of God in this world. The idea of the Shekinah was simply this, that God is a glorious being. And then the question that follows that is, well, how glorious is he? And the idea behind the Shekinah is, he's so glorious that if he shows any human being the fullness of his glory, what will happen to that human being? It will kill them. Not because God intends to kill them, but he can't help but kill them. Because his glory is so awesome and so powerful, and because of the effect of sin upon the human being, their fallen and corrupted soul cannot stand the full display of his glory. And so when God appeared to his people throughout the Old Covenant, he did so graciously. He did so mercifully, and he did so accommodating their weakness with the full understanding of the greatness of his own glory and majesty. And so he would wrap himself in a cloud, the cloud functioning as a filter of his glory. Because without the cloud, again, the full power of the light beams just try to think of uh, like, like in science fiction if a, if a spaceship flies too close to the sun 
you know, what happens is just the power and the radiance of the sun overwhelms, even like in Star Trek, you know, they've got shields and everything, but if they get too close to the sun, it's going to obliterate the ship. So the Lord wraps himself in a garment, and that garment is a cloud. His glory is still there, but it's now shining through the filter of the cloud, and the cloud is simply to help the people to be able to see the appearance of the Lord, but to not be obliterated by it, to not be overwhelmed by it. So there are some very important Shekinah moments in Israel's history. The pillar of cloud, when the Lord led in the saving event of the Exodus, he led the children of Israel out of Egypt and into eventually the promised land through their, their journey through the wilderness. He led them with what was called a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Does that mean that the cloud went away at night? No, it just means that what was inside the cloud during the day was even more visible at night. They could see the glory, the glorious fire of the Lord's presence inside the cloud. They could see that even more clearly at nighttime. Then, of course, from there, we have the special events in Israel's history of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law when that same pillar of cloud settled upon the entire mountain and stayed there for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses was called into that cloud and interacted with the Lord miraculously for 40 days and 40 nights because he never ate anything and he never drank anything being sustained only by the glory of God for those 40 days and receives from the Lord both the law what we call now the law of Moses and the blueprint instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and then shortly after that event the tabernacle is actually constructed and that same pillar of cloud that leads them And that same pillar that was on the summit of Mount Sinai, when the tabernacle is completed, that cloud settles directly on top of the tabernacle and fills the tabernacle. And you and I know that the tabernacle is an image, first and foremost, of Christ, and secondarily, and now, an image and symbol of the church. But that cloud filled the tabernacle. And then later in history, as God transitions from the tabernacle to the temple and under the, the, the ministry of Solomon, the temple of stone is built there on the temple mount in uh, Jerusalem. And when Solomon completes the work, that same glory cloud that they had not seen now for generations appears once again, the Shekinah cloud of the Lord fills the temple of God in Jerusalem. And then one final, and this one should be uh, pretty clear in our remembrance, but turn with me for a moment back to Matthew chapter, actually let's look at the Luke account because we've read, studied the Matthew account. Uh, Let's look at Luke chapter nine. Same event. And this is a, what we would call a new covenant appearance of the glory cloud that is really in the transition between old and new covenant because it's during the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. And we're reading now from Luke chapter nine, verse 34. The event that we call the transfiguration. 
Jesus is, I'm not reading all the verses of the transfiguration account in Luke that lead up to this key moment, but Jesus is on the mountaintop with his three chosen disciples and both Moses and Elijah appear and are interacting with the Lord Jesus there on the mountain. And verse 34 says, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Again, that cloud is the same cloud now. And we're back in Acts chapter one. It's the same cloud that appears on the scene. It's the Shekinah cloud of the Lord's glory. And then when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now the next detail is in verse 10. While they were gazing into heaven as he went. So the word gazing here means to, it describes looking at something with almost like what we would call tunnel vision, where you're, you're looking at that one thing and you're not paying attention to anything else. You're transfixed by what you're looking at. And you and I would be too if we had been privileged to be there that day. The Lord himself is literally lifting from the surface of the planet right in front of us and he is, he is moving upwards And suddenly, the Shekinah glory cloud of God's own presence begins to envelop him. And then he's fully captured, in a sense, by that cloud and finally disappears entirely from our sight. But they're just, they're transfixed. They're they're still gazing into heaven, probably with their jaws close to the surface of the ground that he's just lifted off of and they can't stop looking. And as they're there in that circumstance, suddenly they become aware that they're not alone. I mean, of course, there's the 11, but now suddenly there's 13. A moment ago, there was 12, because it was Jesus and the 11. But Jesus is now parted from their sight and carried away by the cloud. So the 11 are still there, but suddenly they're 13. Two men, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And this is just... Luke's way, and he's not the only gospel writer that does this, but it's, it's Luke's way of saying they suddenly were there. It wasn't like these two men just kind of like walked up on the Mount of Olives because people would travel across the Mount of Olives. It's not like they were just coming from the village of Bethany and they just happened to encounter the 11 and the 11 are up there staring. Have you ever walked into a group of people that are all staring in one particular direction. You just, you're curious about what's going on and so you join the group and you're looking up with them like what's going on. Clearly these two men, and they're not identified any way other than two men. Again, this is all through the disciples' perspective, what they appear like, stood by them in white robes. So what are we meant to get from this? This is obviously two angels who have suddenly appeared on the scene rather than walked into this circumstance. And they have something to say to the 11. What they have to say confirms that our 
conclusion that these are two angels is a, a valid conclusion, a discerning conclusion. They say to the 11 men of Galilee, number one, while that's a fairly insignificant description, it does prove one thing. The, these two men have supernatural knowledge. Because if this is just two travelers coming from the village of Bethany on the far side of the Mount of Olives encountering the leaven, how would they know that they're men of Galilee? The men of Galilee had a different accent, but they're not talking at this moment. They're just gazing into heaven transfixed. They didn't wear a special uniform identifying themselves as men of Galilee. So these two angels know exactly who they're dealing with and talking to and they say men of Galilee and it's an interesting question that's asked why do you stand looking into heaven well duh I we just saw the Lord Jesus lift from earth to heaven it's pretty important it's pretty big we've never seen anything like it that's why we're looking into heaven so the point isn't hey you have no valid reason to be looking into heaven. The angels know they have valid reason to still be staring into heaven so soon after what they've just witnessed. The point is, though, where does this go from here? And the inference of their question is, you're not meant, having just had this experience, to camp here. Do you remember what happened in the transfiguration experience? And Peter's helpful uh, suggestion to the Lord, Lord, this is so awesome. I've got an idea. Why don't I, why don't I erect three tents? You know, you can stay in one. Moses can stay in another. Elijah can stay in the third one. We don't even need a tent. We just want to hang out here with you guys. Let's make this permanent. And... A similar kind of thing is probably happening in the hearts of the disciples in this moment. They are transfixed by what they have observed, but they are meant to do something with what they've observed. What the Lord has just done, what he's just revealed to them, what he's just shown them is meant to now move them in a new direction. Now, what direction is that? Well, he's given them the instructions. Verse 8, again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And as soon as he finished saying those words, the experience of the ascension takes place. And so now the disciples are transfixed and they're kind of stuck in this moment. And the angels giving them a, what I would call a holy nudge in the right direction, ask them a question, which is, why are you stuck looking into heaven? And the implication is, it's time to get about the fulfillment of the assignment of the commission that he has given to you. Now, they have one more thing to say. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, which simply is now... In the description of the angels, they're confirming what we've been emphasizing all along, that Jesus did not take himself into heaven, but was taken into heaven by God the Father. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
And by the way, just the word heaven there is an important detail because as far as they know, they're not sure where Jesus just went. Yes, he went up into the sky, but he entered a cloud and disappeared from their sight. Do you remember at least one important story in Old Covenant history was very similar, which was the experience of Elijah, the prophet, as he was carried from the surface of the planet in the chariot of God and disappeared from human sight. And Elisha, who was left behind, has understanding, but everybody else that was observing that event that day, what did they do? They started looking around, like, where did he go? Did the, did the chariot carry him a mile away? Let's look over that ridge. Let's, let's look in the next valley. Let's, let's, let's track him down. They had no real understanding that he was moving from one spirit, one, one physical dimension, so to speak, into a higher and greater dimension that we call heaven. And so this Jesus who was taken from you by angelic testimony now into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now there are options here. They say he's going to come. And we've studied that the comings of the Lord are multitude in scripture. There is a number of comings of the Lord. Which coming is in view here? And all of the best students of this portion of God's word, all of the best theologians, all of the best pastor teachers will agree that the coming that's in view here is the second coming of Christ. And so the angels reference a future event that we know, the disciples didn't, is separated by a minimum of 2,000 years from their experience because it's been 2,000 years so far. But what they do say, and this is angelic testimony now, so it is possible for any human being to kind of, like the disciples sometimes did, like you sometimes have, like I sometimes have, to, to kind of attach our own ideas to what's being said in scripture. And we're just not sure, but we think we're sure. And it turns out that I didn't have the right understanding of the timing and the unfolding of these events. The angels say, and angels only communicate messages directly from God himself. So there is never any error in any angelic description of events of history. The angels say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now there's final detail there, which is in one sense, number one, we have the certainty of the second coming that's being declared. Number two, in what sense is he gonna come in the same way? And I'm gonna say it's not going to be an identical coming to his ascension, but it is going to be a very similar coming to his ascension. What's different? Who were the witnesses of his ascension? The 11 disciples that are there that day, and then now we have two angels added to that to that number. So we have a total of 13 beings that are there to witness his ascension that day. How many will be witnesses of his second coming? The entire planet. Everybody, whether believer or unbeliever, will witness the return of the Lord in the second coming. There are similarities 
and there are differences. What are the similarities? These, and, and we don't have time to study these, I'm just gonna give you a short list. This is how the Lord will return because this is how he left and this is what we're meant to take away from what the angels had to say to the disciples that day. He will return in a personal way because he left in a personal way. He will return in a physical return because he left with a physical resurrected human body. He will return visibly because he left in a visible, observable way. He will return powerfully because that's how he was raised from this planet and he will return in a glorious way because he was carried away by the Shekinah glory cloud of God the Father's own presence. All right, we're gonna stop our study right here. And as I said, uh, next week, we're going, or not next week, next study, two weeks from now, we're gonna continue our consideration of the ascension, but we're going to shift our perspective from earth to heaven, from the disciples' viewpoint to heaven's viewpoint. And we're going to look at a couple of key passages if you want to uh, spend some time in those passages between now and then. We're gonna look at uh, the book of Revelation chapter five, which is an account of the ascension of Christ from heaven's perspective. And then we'll look at a passage we've studied before, which is the prophecy of Daniel chapter seven. So Lord willing, we'll be back together two weeks from now to continue our study of the ascension. Let's pray just before we break for the day. Father, thank you for the time that you have set apart for us to consider principles and events in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. I'm thankful, Lord, for the accounts that you've given us of the ascension of your son and all that it's meant to convey to us. I pray that in today's study and next study and then the two that follow as we consider the significance of the ascension and how it applies to our lives today and for the rest of our lives in this world and even for the rest of our lives in eternity, I pray that you would please deepen our heart's understanding and broaden our appreciation, Lord, for all that you have accomplished in the great work that you've done in your son and the, the, the grand finale, so to speak, of his ministry in this world as he returned to your side in heaven itself. I thank you for your grace that is experienced in our deep study of your word together. We thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.